Welcome to the Global Safety Podcast, sponsored by Lloyd's Register Foundation. This is a series of discussions with global thought leaders all about engineering a safer world for future generations. And today, we're talking about the ocean. When most of us think about the sea, it might be in the context of a beautiful holiday, a walk by the wet stuff, or possibly a more blowy and tempestuous day. So it can be a thing of beauty, but also a dangerous place, a poorly regulated place and sometimes an overexploited and polluted place. And yet we need the ocean more than ever before. It provides food to sustain many of us. It provides the transport links for much of the way our materials move around the world. It actually provides a buffer from the worst impacts of climate change and is obviously linked in so many ways to our lives, not least, of course, to what was a maritime nation like the United Kingdom and is still a country, last time I checked, surrounded by the sea. In this episode, we're going to explore the link between safety, environmental protection and sustainability when it comes to the ocean and marine industries and try to find some answers, solutions where it applies. But first, we're going to hear from a fellow broadcaster who also made his name as an adventurer and campaigner, Ben Fogel, who told me earlier why he's passionate about our oceans. I think people are drawn to mountains, to rivers, to oceans, to deserts. And for me, the place where I've always felt most comfortable has been the ocean. I, I grew up in, in central London, but it was those kind of fleeting interactions that I had with the ocean that, um, that, that really captured my heart my imagination and and my passion and and uh, and i just always found it um I, I found it moving and i found it I, I it kind of made me feel alive i think a lot of people forget just how important the oceans are for our well-being for our health they affect our weather patterns they they affect so much of of what we experience rainfall uh, drought, all of those things um, happen because of these huge bodies of water that have the power to control everything. Thanks to Ben Fogel there, and we'll hear a little bit more from him later. But now, to help me with a deep dive into the subject, sorry for that, we have a fantastic panel with a brilliant collective wealth and experience. We have Dr. Ruth Bumfrey, who is Director of Research and Strategic Programmes for Lloyd's Register Foundation. Ignace Begin, who is Ocean Lead for the UN Global Compact, a UN initiative supporting sustainability principles and climate goals. Ming-Li Ho, Technical Analyst for the Green Voyage 2050 project at the International Maritime Organization. And Doug Allen, initially a marine biologist and research diver, now an underwater cameraman who brought many of the most famous images we have in our mind's eye of the undersea world, Many of those came from Doug. So let's start with climate change and emissions. Roughly 90% of all products and raw materials are distributed at some stage, at least, by shipping. And this means that maintaining and keeping open the flow of maritime trade is absolutely vital to our modern society. But currently, nearly all this industry runs on fossil fuels, and this needs to change. So Ming Li first. Simple question, really. What is the IMO doing to try and cut the carbon footprint of shipping? Um, it has set itself a target to reduce 
uh, absolute emissions by 50% by 2050 by, um, compared to 2008 levels. Let me just wind back a bit. How big are the emissions from shipping? And I mean, it may be obvious in a way, but I, I guess they're coming from those big engines that move the ships around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, later studies have shown that in 2018, shipping emitted over 1 billion tonnes of CO2. Um, to put that in perspective, that's, that's just a number, it accounts for about 2 to 3% of global GHG emissions, which is about the same as a small developed industrialised nation. If you, I think that's roughly the same as aviation as well, isn't it, that figure? Yeah, and I think if you compare it to other industries like cement, for example, they emit sort of 3 billion tonnes of CO2 annually, so that's quite a lot more. I think I just want to stress how shipping's, shipping is the most energy efficient mode of transportation. So if you think about um, um, emissions per tonne of cargo transported, there is no comparison. The amount of cargo that's being transported on ships, it's the mo- shipping is the most efficient way of transporting goods. There are, of course, different solutions out there. So it's tech- there's technical solutions, invest- um, technologies that can be deployed on a ship. For example, um, air lubrication, which reduces the frictional resistance, so therefore reducing fuel consumption, which in turn reduces emissions. There's operational measures, so things like improving your speed or um, speed optimization, improving your voyage planning, so ensuring that you don't um, navigate into stormy weather, which would increase your fuel consumption. But then, of course, I think there's recognition that only those technical and operational solutions will get us so far. Um, And if we want the majority of emission reduction to achieve the goals that have been set, we'll need to come from the use of alternative fuels. Yeah, it's interesting how much you can achieve through making ships more slippery, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really important to recognise that the shipping industry is is so diverse, there's so many different types of ships operating in different areas and different waters. Um, and so the solutions that will be employed to achieve that target of, to reduce those emissions is going to be different for every ship type. Um, and that's why also IMO follows this goal-based approach and not being too prescriptive on what technology should be deployed. Um, I think it also encourages innovation um, because it means that we're not just limiting ourselves to the solutions that exist today. But Ruth, this is a tough nut to crack, isn't it? Because I guess ships are still being built today with pretty hefty uh, diesel-burning engines, which are expected to be on the seas for, what, 25, 40 years? I don't know. Uh, Absolutely, Tom. I think that's one of the very interesting things when we think about the ocean in, in a bigger context is the very long lifespan that the things we're building today have. And that's why I think there's a real opportunity here for us to think forward, to think about, right, if we're going to have ships which are um, zero carbon or carbon neutral in 10, 20 years time, actually, we've got to not only think about those ships, we've got to think about the way they're crewed, we've got to think about the way they're loaded, where the fuel for them comes from, um, and, uh, and the kind of work they do on the oceans as well. Are they there just to take things from A to B, or can they serve additional uh, uses going forward? Doug, you want to come in? Tom, I was just reading um, in preparation for this about these things called flattener rotors, which are basically big vertical sails, and they're powered, basically you, you get them to spin slowly, and that, uh, that affects the wind flow around about them and can add to the thrust that's on the ship, and it can also make it very much more uh, manoeuvrable. And they've recently put these things on, you know, 100 150,000 tonne gas tankers, things that carry gas, and they're getting 20% 20 uh, less uh, fuel that they're using with these things. They can also manoeuvre them much more subtly and carefully. And I'm also interested to 
you know, about the idea of, of putting air out of the side of ship's hulls to make them slide through the water more easily. That is a technique that is used a lot by icebreakers. When they get into sticky, slushy ice, they pump a lot of um, air out of the side of them. The air bubbles up the side of the hull, reduces the friction, and so lets the ship move through, through the ice more easily. Ignace, do you think the shipping industry is moving fast enough on this? But I think we have to be um, more ambitious than what I heard um, right now, to be honest. I think, you know, going to a, a net zero world uh, by, by 2050 should be our uh, global ambition. Uh, of course, um, the shipping industry is not the biggest uh, emitters, and we know that the shipping industry will grow uh, in the next years, uh, and so emission will grow uh, as well. And for the shipping industry, the, the, the tipping point, so this point where we, we know that there will be uh, you know, a radical change in the way uh, the shipping industry is, is, is operating, is that by 2030, we need to have 5% of the internal shipping fleet running on uh, zero emission uh, vessels. So for now, the industry is mostly looking at uh, green uh, hydrogen or green ammonia as the main solution. As Ming Li uh, said, there will be uh, you know, a set of solutions. Uh, there will, will not be a uh, you know, single si- silver bullet. Are there some sizable ships being built or planned with actually that as their propulsion? Yeah, there's definitely um, some pilot demonstrations that are taking place. There are definitely investments. I think it's important to recognise that in order to get a ship that runs on hydrogen or ammonia, there's a lot more infrastructure that supports that to enable that to take place in terms of storage, in terms of handling, even just in terms of the propulsion system, because these new fuels are not as energy dense as as heavy fuel oil or the the traditional conventional fuels that are being used currently. Um, So there might be issues in terms of storage um, or how much can be stored on board, yeah. Isn't the problem here, Ruth, that this is a highly competitive and lightly regulated uh, area? So, you know, different companies, different countries want to compete against each other? That's right, Tom. I think it's a difficult... You know, everyone uses an analogy of turning around an oil tanker and literally we're turning around an oil tanker. (laughs) We're trying to change something which has got so much long-term planning, long-term cost, long-term investment in it, which isn't thought through from end to end. So if you you look at the other end of a ship lifespan, you know, how are we going to dismantle these things safely? How are we going to to um, uh, you know, the end of end of life of, of, of big ships and these and and all this equipment that we're going to need to make this safe. So there's a real real lack of um, end-to-end thinking and big picture thinking, and I think that's what we've got to do. And we can't leave. And how do we get that? How how do we achieve so that? I, th- I think we can't leave that just to countries, and I don't think we can leave that to the sort of the big convention type talk. You know, if we look at where big decisions are made, they're made in investment markets, they're made in companies. And we have to change the way investment is made. We have to raise consciousness of what the consequences of those investments are for our planet and for our people. And that's what I want to really advocate in this discussion, because we have to change our way of thinking. And that's everybody. But but starting with investment, starting with company behaviour, and, and talking about countries as well. I, I think countries for sure have a role here. But the behaviour has to go beyond that. Uh, does that in effect mean that if you are building a low carbon ship, maybe a ship based on a uh, zero carbon form of propulsion, you ought to be able to borrow money more cheaply to build it or something like that? You, it should be easier to find finance for that 
than it should be for for a program of building those fil- based on bunker fuel. I, I certainly agree with that, Tom. I, I I'm not an expert myself in in finance either, but I do think that we have to think about the true value of the things that we use, consume, and where they come from, and the cost of those to the environment and to the humans in doing that. So if I think about just a very simple thing, I was at a dinner the other night and there was um, a plate of seafood, on, a lovely plate of seafood, mixed seafood. And uh, my, my friend there sort of said, oh my goodness, look at the price of that. How can they charge such a huge price for this plate of seafood? And I looked at the plate and I thought, how can, it's not expensive, it's actually very cheap. You know, the price of it didn't reflect the cost to the environment or the cost to the people who had to work so hard to get that plate of fish put on that plate. That's why I think we need to change our thinking. Sorry, Doug. I was just going to say that on the news today, I heard that there was a debate finally about how the problem with all food production, no matter where it comes from, um, is that it's, it's, it's designed to come cheap. The system tries to make it as cheap as possible, and there's no price factored in for the damage to the natural world caused by the like of pesticides on land or fishing methods on the sea or the way that we get it from A to B. And, you know, people really need to start thinking about many things in a different way. We need a, a, a quantum leap in the criteria and how we, how we run our economics, basically. We, we have all the wrong methods of, 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 of establishing efficiency, for example. Um, and the carbon cost is just not built into things at the moment. Let's just stick on uh, carbon and climate for a minute, but move away from shipping. Uh, Ineas, what are the ways that the sea can can help us, can provide solutions, be they nature-based or or maybe sort of semi-nature-based in the form of uh, aquaculture? Yeah, I mean, I I think the ocean has, you know, a a lot of of solution uh, when it comes to to, to climate change. Um, And and there is much more that needs to, to be done in order to really tap the full potential of the ocean. And here I'm thinking about, you know, renewable energy uh, and the potential of offshore wind, uh, which really needs to be scaled up. There is uh, the potential of, of the seafood um, industry, um, I think, uh, producing low carbon uh, protein um, for a world-growing population. Uh, the, the industry such as aquaculture has a big potential. We know aquaculture has, you know, m- many challenges, but also uh, has great potential if we able to overcome the issues such as you know overuse of, of pesticides let me just interrupt you there how do we do it right because as we know it, it in some ways it's an efficient form of protein production in other ways you know it's em- emptying a lot of chemicals and fish sewage into the sea and, and causing some horrendous local environmental impact a couple of solutions that the market is looking at for instance is uh, creating enhanced uh, biodiversity system around the farm, such as uh, seaweed, uh, which will help create some biodiversity around the farm. Uh, and if you are able to, to create this more thriving ecosystem or ocean, it will you know, help uh, reduce the need to use uh, pesticides, uh, medicines and, and fish feed. Then there is certainly uh, a lot of work that needs to be done when it comes to uh, fish feed. As, as you may know, how we must feed fish uh, fish in aquaculture farm is by fishing fish in the ocean and then 
give gives it to the fish in, in the farm. So I think you know innovative solution like insects or again seaweed are a solution that the industry is looking at, and there is also potential around um, offshore uh, aquaculture and more large scale aquaculture. I want to ask Doug: Have you do you dive solely in in beautiful uh, natural environments? Have you ever dived? I don't know near a near a, a fish farm or or a, or anything else like that. Well, yeah, I have dived near fish farms. It's interesting. You can see the, the to be honest, the toxic effect of them. Immediately underneath the fish cages is often an area bereft of life because, as Ignace has just said, they, they're fed from pellets which just get thrown into the water. Effectively, not all of them are eaten. They settle on the bottom and you get this large sludgy mass underneath and you can see the effect of that the further you go from the immediate fish pen. Um and yeah, I mean, certain areas of the world are the oceans are in very good condition, but certain of them are, are certainly degraded because of the pollution that's caused either locally or by, you know, plastic pollution is a big thing, spreads all over the place. So yes, I don't always, we always seek out the virgin areas, but equally well, we've got this problem of the baseline. If you talk to a an old cameraman, a camera person older than me, they will tell you what Africa or the Red Sea was like before I started diving there. And I consider those places to be lovely. They will often say, ah, you should have seen it 30, 40 years ago. And that goes for the Mediterranean. If you go back the Mediterranean 100 years, it was a, you know, like a virgin ocean. But the way that we've carried on with the factories on the seashores, things like that, and just um, irresponsible pollution has definitely spread through many of the oceans in the world. I, I want to move on to what is perhaps the obvious historic and current way in which we most strongly affect our seas, and that is by literally fishing the fish out of them. Doug, have you seen places that in your diving lifetime have changed as a result of overfishing? Yes, I, I could take you to, to areas of Scotland where bottom trawling has caused an incredible amount of damage. Um, you know, imagine, as someone said, it's akin to imagine someone in a balloon floating above the clouds, sending down a giant net and just scooping up everything that this net could trawl across. It would come up full of cars and people and prams and old grannies and everything like that. If you know all sorts of stuff that they didn't want, and it's the same when you when you start bottom drawing, you may be looking for fish um, or or shellfish just under the surface or fish that live in the mud. But to get those fish, you have to trawl along into the mud, hauling up everything, and it really just leaves the place as a desert. And it's a classic case of if we did that kind of thing on land, it would have been banned long ago. Because we can't see it, because we can't see what's happening, it still gets carried on. Ruth, isn't the problem with fishing that we see all over the world is that if you have a single very powerful authority on top, it is usually capable or can be capable of successfully regulating the fishing. And when we see, you know, in the in the old days in Europe, Iceland managed to protect its fish stocks because it was the only one responsible and it was mattered to them, so they enforced it. Whereas the European Union made a right haulix out of it. Um, isn't this the problem? You need a, a single authority with the will to enforce a fishing I, I regime? I think it's certainly true that if you have the possibility of a single authority uh, with good enforcement, then you can create big change. But what I would um, liken 
the oceans to at the moment is, is the old American Wild West. So if you think about um, essentially an area which is overexploited and unexplored, you know, where, where you have land grabs happening, where industrialization happens without any planning or without any regulation. And that's how I think about the oceans. And that's what I think we need to avoid. That is the, um, the concept that I, that I think we should move forward with. Because essentially, we've talked about fishing. Fishing has become hugely industrialized in, a, in an uncontrolled way, without forethought and without planning. You know, we need fish. You know, fish, fish sustains so many human beings, and we have to think about the people in this system completely. But unless we have good structured planning, not just for fishing, but for offshore oil, offshore wind, for our shipping, for any kind of new activities that we do at sea, which, and there will be many more new activities that we do at sea, we, but we need to do that in a, in a controlled way, which, um, which recognises the rights of our planet and also the rights of the people working in those conditions. And that's one of the things we haven't talked about yet, is, is the people who are out there working on the ships, in fishing, on the oil rigs. Um, so so, so that, that sort of concept, I, I, I think we need to look at it holistically, rights for the planets and rights for the people. And, and you've got a, a, a concept, I, I think, about was it us becoming better ocean citizens. Can you tell me what that means? So if we look, if we look out to the future, we, we, we're so dependent on the oceans already, but we're going to be increasingly dependent on the oceans, not only in the open ocean, but also at the ocean margins for our food, for our energy, for our resources, our transportation, so many things. And I'm looking to that future. I'm looking out 10, 20, 30 years and thinking, what do we need to do to get there safely and sustainably? What are the things that we're going to need in place? I've got a concept of ocean citizenship here because we all know what it's like to be a citizen of our countries. We have rights and responsibilities but they're, and they're controlled by our state. But when you step out into the oceans, who, who, who gives you your rights and who gives you your responsibilities? And I think we need a charter of rights and responsibilities for all those companies, individuals, countries who are using the oceans in, in a, such a non-sustainable way and to, and to have an enforceable way of articulating those rights and responsibilities. And I do think that comes back to investment. I think if, if you're investing in something where people don't have the right to be safe and if the planet doesn't have the right to, to be treated in a sustainable way, then you shouldn't be investing. But, and we can come together and articulate that without big conventions, although that would be helpful. <laughs> we, we can do it, you know, as companies or as citizens. And that's, that's this sort of out of sight, out of mind. I want to bring the oceans into the minds of people. No longer out of sight, out of mind or, or under the waves. It's got to be, you've got to open it up, got to make it visible. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are places that we can't go, but we can know. And that's the oceans. We need to, we need to know the oceans, even if we can't go there. Talking of knowing the oceans, Doug, I, I think somewhere that you've uh, explored and dived a lot is the, the Antarctic and some of the waters around there. I think I'm right in saying that they've actually have been quite successful with some of the, the governance regimes over seals and indeed fish in in the south atlantic is that right yes the antarctic is covered by the antarctic treaty which was with a great deal of foresight signed in the early 60s and has been renegotiated twice so effectively everything south of 60 degrees is is it's interesting it's not it's it's not it's controlled by by a scientific committee of the antarctic 
politics to the largest degree are kept out of it. Not always, but you do have this wonderful association of basically scientists who are looking after it. And sci Antarctica was, and the waters around Antarctica were designated as basically a giant area of scientific interest. But within that, we've got large marine areas like the Ross Sea Dependencies, which is a giant marine park. And so generally, you know, where Antarctica's waters are very well looked after. Yeah. The problem is that, that you, you can't yeah. isolate any group of water from any other body of water, just like you can't put a bell jar over somewhere that's being affected by climate change but, and stop it. But it seems to me it does have a lesson in that... Absolutely. The, the, the key thing is study it well, make a plan. Yes, keep the politicians out. <laughs> and, and, and keep the enforcers in. So exactly, the keep the enforcers in. But just briefly before I move off this, and I do mean briefly, Ruth, you may know about this. I mean, these days with enforcement, I mean, satellites can do a lot of work for us, can't they? I've seen those, those global maps where, you know, every ship that's legally supposed to have a, a kind of a transponder on it is showing you where it is. So it's, it's a little bit more difficult to hide these days, isn't it, in the wild west of the ocean? Uh, absolutely. I think there's this huge opportunity here with increased monitoring of our planet to actually make a big difference. Now, we've seen this in our forests already, on land, in forestry um, maintenance, in forestry conservation, and even in citizen science for forests. So there's this great, um, great programme where schools adopt a little piece of forest and then they, they monitor it for any changes and, and they adopt the trees. They can recognise every single tree in the forest in the, in the Amazon. I'd like to see something similar happen for the oceans. I'd like to see uh, a big global citizen science project where we use the resources that we start to know and study and adopt certain parts of the ocean so that we don't leave it outside and out of mind, but we can use satellite imagery, we can use um, the, the sort of telecommunications, we can, we can bring that part of the ocean into our lives and make it uh, be more accountable and, and adopt it and look after it in a different kind of way. I think you're dead right, and this is where science can come into it too. We could put barcodes on every single box of fish that was landed and check that fish when it was brought ashore to find out where the, where the fish stocks were that it originated. Um, this sort of thing is definitely more, more capable of being done now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Moving on now, I want to talk about the people involved in all of this and our marine industries including fishing shipping and some other offshore trades can be very very dangerous to work in and um, we're going to hear briefly from uh, ben fogel again now who knows a thing or two about the perils of the high sea my biggest ocean immersion was when i rode across it three thousand miles between Spain and uh, the Caribbean um, as part of a, a, an ocean rowing race. I've done a lot of ocean journeys over the years. I've, I've traveled to the farthest, remotest islands by sailboat, by steamer, by uh, cruise ship. But there was something really, really quite profound about those 49 days and nights that I spent in that tiny little 20 foot rowing boat. I wasn't there alone. I was there with one other um, rower, James Cracknell, the, the Olympic rower. So I wasn't entirely alone, but a lot of the rowing was solitary because the other person slept. I think anyone that has spent a lot of time at sea will mirror my sentiments or recognise my sentiments that you have a love-hate relationship with it. And it's not even love-hate, it's love-fear because the ocean can turn on a whim. 
it, the ocean is the all-powerful. It is the almighty. And it has, it has this ability to turn from benign, beautiful, uh, comforting to the complete opposite. It can turn into a, a, a monster. It has taken many, many, many mariners' lives over the years. I've, I've worked on many projects where I have seen firsthand or, or I've heard secondhand the, the power of the ocean to take lives, in, often in huge uh, quantities. So th there's a, a tremendous amount of respect Ben Fogel there talking about how unforgiving the ocean can be. And I want to talk about uh, some of those uh, perils, but I don't know whether this might be one for, for Ming Li. Uh, just in, in recent years, I'm, I'm, I say recent years, let's say the, at least the last 50 years, I guess has the safety, general safety of, of, of shipping improved? Yeah, absolutely. It has it has definitely improved. I mean, I think I would just say how the sea is a really challenging working environment itself. You know, for many of us, shipping is, is out of sight and out of mind. And we might not realise that these seafarers are, are out there in the oceans for long periods of time and don't get to, to come back um, for, for long periods of time. And so you not only have a physically challenging environment, um, difficult conditions, long hours of work, and they're very isolated with limited internet access, um, or assistance if anything goes wrong. I'm guessing there has been improvement for the last 50 years or so. Ruth, what's mainly been behind that? Well, there's, there's been a huge uh, increase in, in new kind of regulations which have been very successful in, in helping the average seafarer. So um, I guess what I'd say is that, that there's, there's less people at sea, so, so there's smaller crews on ships, so, so fewer people being put at, at risk. And there's much better telecommunications. So the, the satellite systems that serve our our ships have um, have improved hugely over the last fifty years. I mean, I'm guessing that satnav makes it a lot harder to crash a ship into the shore than it used to be. <laughs> yeah, certainly navigational systems have improved greatly. Autopilot systems have improved greatly. There's lots of um, systems on board that now, with technology advancements, make it a lot easier. And communication has improved. So just communication between the port and the ship um, has, has improved a lot as well. So I think the thing to recognise is that whilst there's been a huge um, leap forwards in safety, um, being a, a, a mariner, being a sailor is still one of the most risky occupations that you can have um, with, with long-term consequences to things like mental health, long-term health conditions... Um, and um, and that's just the mariners. Now, if we look uh, if we look at the worker at sea more generally, so we talked about fishing. You know, fishermen, I think, is the most hazardous occupation. Many thousands of fishermen die every year in doing their work, um, and that is um, that is one of the um, unrecognised things about about the fish that ends up on your plate is, is the huge danger that, that that goes into securing that that fish in the market or the fish on your plate. So it's a mixture of different things. There's a, there's a mixture of um, local and artisan fishing. Um, and then there's what we've talked about already, which is the industrialised type fishing. And some of that's very unregulated. And there's some very interesting journalists working out there who are trying to expose some of the practices and the human rights abuses that do happen in the fishing industry and, and, in, and in the maritime industry as well, at different scales. But you know, in coastal margins, the, there is often more hidden problems around um, smaller scale fishing or, or you know, the sort of ferry industry, which is also has been um, unsafe 
but has also made great uh, leaps forward more recently as well, I would say. So there's ferries, there's fishing. And, and if we go into things like, if we, even if you look at things like oil rigs, you look at the kind of uh, accidents and problems that have been happening at sea in the oil and gas industry. And now thinking forward, let's look then at the um, offshore wind turbines. You know, th these are still hugely hazardous jobs. And we haven't built in, this is my point, we haven't built in the safety requirements that we should have built in, even looking forward. So this is why, as Ignace says, we need to manage those oceans. We need to put in place the infrastructures to keep people safe, whatever job they're doing at sea, whether it's having telecommunications that you can, you can send out an alert or you can communicate with your family or, or replacing a lot of those hazardous jobs with robots and, and, and systems which, which automate the processes and take people out of harm's way. And I, I think there are some issues around um, bonded labour, if not actual sort of slave labour on, on some, uh, some vessels particularly some of the sort of medium-sized fishing vessels that have, you know, crews and, and basically no passports. I, th I think that's right, Tom. I think if, you, if you, you can do a quick Google search and you can find projects like the Outlaw Ocean with some horrendous stories and about people, you know, these are real people with real lives and real families and the kind of conditions that they're working with and their lack of rights uh, in, in the jobs they do. These are, you know, we've done a lot of work looking at modern slavery, and there's still undoubtedly conditions of modern slavery in many of the jobs that we find at sea. And that is something that we'd like to change in this sort of concept of having proper citizenship, where, where every, every right and every life and, and the oceans themselves you know, are, are enshrined in some sort of rights and responsibilities that we can sign up to. And what about the pandemic? What kind of impact has COVID had on seafarers? Well, I mean, whilst many of us have been able to work from home, um, seafarers have obviously kept the supply chains going um, throughout this pandemic and have sustained, you know, vital supplies of, of PPE or, you know, personal protective equipment, vaccines, medical equipment and, and cargo, just all sorts of cargo. They've been, um, and due to travel restrictions that can change quite rapidly as we know it, they can sort of change from one night to the other. Um, countries have brought in different restrictions on, on, on uh, people being able to enter and leave the country. And that has meant that seafarers aren't able to change their crews as regularly as, as they might have wanted to. And so they've been stuck on board. And we've seen cases of up to, up to two years they've been on board, and this is well beyond their contract. And I think that's obviously um, a huge risk. It's such, we were talking about hazards and, and the stress or fatigue, you're more prone to making mistakes. We all know that if we're really tired, we're just more prone to, to, to making errors. And of course, that can lead to loss of cargo and, and pollution, but also it could mean a loss of life. You know, it's quite dangerous. Um, and so IMO is, is rec advocating for um, seafarers to be designated as key workers to just to smoothen that um, and, and enable seafarers to get on board and, 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 and go back home or, and, and to come off and to, to enable that crew change to take place. Um, and also to, to give them priority access to, to vaccines if possible. That's also what IMO is advocating because these seafarers are traveling, you know, internationally between different, different countries. Um, and uh, yeah, it's important that we protect them. Ruth, do you want to come in briefly there? I just wanted to say hats off to the IMO for the work they've done during the pandemic to raise this as an issue. I think we, we have seen on social media and different types of media some recognition of, of the work of seafarers, which, which was before invisible and is becoming more visible, but we've still got a long way to go. So I just, 
you know, two years on board your ship is a, is a prison sentence in any other country. So uh, um, without any rights to travel or, or you know, you're, you're confined. So um, I, I think we really do need to work hard for the rights of, of seafarers and, and other people at sea. Yeah, I just wanted to make two points, first of all, on, on the issue of, of, um, of the fishing industry and, and, and slavery and, you know, fishing, uh, fishermen being at risk. I think there is regulation in its here again, all about enforcement. There is regulation to have observers uh, on, on board um, fishing uh, fleets, but only two to five percent of fishing fleet are uh, observer, uh, uh, independent observer on board. So this is, I think, uh, a critical issue. The second point is about seafarer. I think it's also, you know, beyond uh, government, it's also a global value chain effort uh, that needs to be done, and and companies. Uh, have a role uh, to play when they uh, orders or you know have uh, interaction with the um, uh, the shipping industry to set in the contracts proper protection for seafarers, uh, make sure that you, basic human rights uh, are uh, respected, etc., etc. So I think companies in their contract have a direct uh, role and even obligation to make sure seafarers' uh, rights are respected uh, in their uh, value chain. Well, we've had a look at the uh, people, we've had a look at the nature of the seas, and we've had a look at the climate threat. I just want to get, as a final thought from folk, uh, a kind of vision of what you would hope our oceans would uh, look like, both on top and, and, and beneath, and, and what they'd be doing for us, let's say, and doing for themselves in, in 30 years' time. Uh, Ming Lee, let's start with you. What will our oceans be like in, in, in 2050? Would you hope if everything went according to plan. There is a big challenge ahead of us, but I, I'm optimistic. There's a lot more awareness of what's going on with our oceans now. Um, and the more we raise awareness, the more um, consumers are, are more aware of the choices that they're making. And I think all of this creates the right conditions to accelerate decarbonisation. Ruth Bomfrey, paint me a picture of our oceans in 2050. What I would like to see is is that not only do we make our oceans more visible, so let's, let's understand them, let's know what's going on in the oceans in the, in the most natural sense, you know, what, what, are, what are the creatures, what are the support, what is, what is the um, flora and fauna that are in our oceans, but also to understand the industries which are being built and planned in our oceans. And then, as we build out those industries for our oceans, they're, they're, they're built out in a planned and well-managed way, so that it's not a wild west, that we have the right support structures down, we have emergency services, we have support services, we're all sharing the, the same electricity and the same water and the same utilities that we're going to need at sea that, that we do on land, and that we articulate the rights and responsibilities of all people towards the oceans, whether we work on them or work far away from them, we all affect them and we all need to respect them. Uh, Ineas, what are your, what's your vision of the... The ocean 2050. Well, I, I guess for me in, in 2050, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, in the coming years, there will be a stronger global recognition of the role uh, of the ocean when it comes to, to you know, tackle the ch biggest challenge of our time, which is climate change, but also being able to deliver a more uh, equitable and, and sustainable uh, global economy. So we need a much better um, um, management of the ocean if we want to both protect it, uh, but also uh, better use the ocean for all it has to, 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 to give to us.
Thank you. And Doug Allen. Well, I would. I mean, I've learned some very interesting things uh, while listening to all these people. I would like to see all the actions that they are proposing put, put into action because we need to save the oceans. We need to save the oceans for the sake of the oceans and particularly for ourselves. The lungs of the planet, they're not only the Amazon, but they are the oceans. I think climate change is a big issue. What we need are fewer words and more actions. We have to do things, we have to do big things, and we have to do them very, very quickly. That way, we will have an ocean to look at in 50 years' time. I'm not sure whether I like it or don't like it when the final speaker steals my final thoughts. <laughs> no, very lucid. Um, thank you. Um, well, thank you to everybody. And Doug Allen's kind of said it, really. Um, by 2050, I guess we'd like to see our oceans protected because that would protect us. Uh, that would be good for the creatures that live within it as well as us, the creatures that live beside it. Um, we cannot maintain this planet unless the blue part of it is healthy. Well, thank you very much for listening to what's been a fascinating programme. And thank you to the panel, uh, Dr. Ruth Bumfrey, Ignaz Begin, Ming Li Ho and Doug Allen. And remember to search for us, the Global Safety Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe for free so you don't miss a single episode. I'm going to go and put my wetsuit on. <laughs>